0: We'll read together this morning First Samuel chapter 23 verses 1 through 29. If you'd like to follow along with one of the Bibles there in your seat, that's page two hundred and forty-five. Last week, while I was away at Christ's Pres in Nashua, we heard from our brother Ernie, but we have been in a series on First Samuel as God has been preparing his replacement for King Saul, who has rejected the ways of God. With David, a man after God's own heart. David has been under the threat of death. In the last passage we looked at, Saul's wrath and rage was poured out on the priests at Nob because they did merely what they were supposed to do. Now we continue the story of God's preservation and care for the future king, David, reading together from Psalm excuse me, from 1 Samuel 23. With the Spirit bless the reading of the word to our understanding? Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, God inqu- Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with the ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, "God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars." And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, "Bring the ephod here." Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come down to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about six hundred, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but the God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish, and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Surely my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding amongst us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jehishman? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hands. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go make yet more sure. No one see the place where his foot is, and, he, and who has seen him there. For it has told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Ma'an, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Ma'an. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Ma'an. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, and Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Mangedi. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, grass withers, and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. Lord, we seek to stand in the firmness of your word this morning. We know that apart from the illumination of your spirit, the guidance, Lord, that you would offer that we are prone to be forgetful, ignorant, and lack understanding, so be with us. Lord, would I speak that which is true and Helpful and edifying to your people, which is glorifying to you. And would all that falls short be quickly forgotten? Lord, we seek more than information and understanding. We seek to worship you as we sit under your word. Help us in that we pray. In the name of Jesus, the living word. Amen. In The passage I just read, David is faced with some difficult choices in uncertain times. He was encouraged by the prophet Gad to come back out of Moab into Judah, into the land of his people. And even there, they are at risk of Saul's wrath coming against them. And then they hear that this city, Keilah, is being attacked and raided. It's it's harvest season. And the Philistines have come to steal the food of those who live in Keilah. David has to decide, do I risk our relative safety in uh, the hinterlands of Judah, or do we go to this city, this city which is outside of Judah, it's really kind of in a no-man's land between Israel and the Philistines, and do we risk putting ourselves in open battle against the Philistines? But then once there is a victory, then he has to wrestle with what to do next. They are in a walled and fortified city, which in one hand would afford them protection against Saul, But Saul put to death the sword, all of the inhabitants of Nob, the priestly family, their their children, their livestock. And so what would his wrath be against Kelah? And what would the people who knew at Nob do? Does he stay and fight? Does he go? What should he do? What should we do? You may find yourself asking that question often what should I do? Sometimes it's in the midst of circumstances in which we just have so many things in our schedule, on our to do list, that we don't know where to start, what is most important. Sometimes we have a choice between two options, maybe two good options, and we're not sure which is the best. Sometimes between two bad options, we're not sure which is the worst. Sometimes we're just not sure what to do when we are overwhelmed in grief and struggle and sorrow, as I felt late this week. While this chapter in the dramatic story of Saul's downfall and David's rise is not one of the more exciting chapters in some ways. This may seem like one of the less significant ones. There is not Doeg, this great Edomite. This is not the defeat of of Goliath. We don't have the internal drama of, of David's wife, the daughter of the king, sending him out the window so that he would be saved from Saul. But while it may be less dramatic in the rise of David, what it does for us this morning is it shows us a God who prepares David for the throne is the same God of Israel who guides his people. That as David is trying to determine what to do and when to do it, God guides him. Not God doesn't just guide his people through the wilderness during the Exodus, but through the chaotic and confusing times of making decisions that affect not only our lives, but the lives of other people around us. First Samuel 23 reveals a God who is present and available to guide His people. He guides His people through the information He gives, through the answers He gives us, and through the fact that his answers are not dependent on us. How does God inform our decisions when we seek his guidance? In this passage, like so many that we've read in First Samuel so far, David and Saul are held up before the readers for comparison and contrast. And we notice a similarity that as they're trying to make decisions, not only David but also Saul, that they are both dependent and utilize the knowledge of men. That is what we often might call general revelation. What do we know about the world in which we live? What is common to our understanding? The very first verse says, Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting. We don't know who they are, but David's information is dependent on what's reported to him by other people. David takes into account the information of his men's fear and his decision about whether to go and fight Keilah. He knows that a dispirited group of men is less likely to fight with confidence if they are to go up in an uncertain circumstance. And so he takes that into account as he seeks the Lord's guidance. He's told in Ziph, again, human intelligence about what's happening of Saul's intent. We also note that where is David hiding? He hides in the fortresses, the strongholds, the wilderness. First of Ziph and at the end in En Gedi. He knows that if you're hiding from an enemy, you don't put your camp in the middle of a broad floodplain. You want to be in the rocks and the caves and the places that are defendable or able to be hid within. Saul, likewise, he was informed by his knowledge of people. Saul was informed by the Ziphites. They came and said to him, King, David is in our midst. Come and find him. To give him an understanding of where David was. This shouldn't surprise us. God's world is his creation. He has placed us in it, and we observe things about people and the way the world works. It helps us to understand something about God's creativity, his power, and his majesty. And studying God's world gives us knowledge like physics and chemistry, medical information with which to treat illnesses, economics and political science to guide voting and policymaking. Even just spending time with other people in different cultures teaches us social skills and how to be with other people. Another thing that's similar about David and Saul is that they both realize that human knowledge is limited. David realizes that the fear of his own men shouldn't be the ultimate test of what he should do. Even Saul knows the limitations. The Ziphites have said, come, we know where David is. And he says, "Um, go back and I want you to find every place. I want there to be no mistakes. David is very cunning. I want a doubly sure report of his movements and where he is because he wants success. But since Saul has rejected trust in the Lord, he has violently cut out the priesthood who could intercede on his behalf. He is left with the limitations of human knowledge. Whereas David can look beyond the fears of his men, the geography in which he's operating, his political and military acumen, he can look beyond that to an alternative in God. Not just an alternative, one set of information, one set of understanding against another, but a higher source that informs our decisions and how we process the world information from the world around us. And so we see David seeking God directly to inform his decision-making. In the opening section, when he's still in the wilderness wanting to know about Keilah, it says he goes and asks the Lord what he should do. He asks him twice in a way that is, sounds similar to Gideon asking whether he should really go fight the Midianites. Now, we're not sure how it comes to the answer. We know that Gad, the prophet, has spent time with David, and so maybe this was through the prophet Gad. Maybe it was David's unique inspiration by the Spirit. We know that Psalm 54 was written during the period when he was in this wilderness in Ziph, so maybe God spoke directly to him. We don't know. But we do know that God makes his answer through his means available to David. And then when he's in Keilah and he's not sure what to do about Saul. God speaks through the appointed means of the ephod. The ephod was, a, was connected to the breastplate that was to be worn by the priest. And there were two stones, the urim and the thummim, that were to be used to determine God's will. And in fact, Saul availed himself of those means of hearing God's will in 1 Samuel 14 before he disobeyed God and was rejected. Twice, David seeks God's wisdom, and God gives him wisdom beyond his human understanding. While these are not the means that we have today, the Urim and the Thummim, active prophets with direct connection to the Lord's will, God has given us his word, which reveals to us all who would come in humble reliance what God wills generally, what is right, what is true, what is good. He gives us instructions as to how to live. We learn from the history of God's redemptive acts. And so in humble reliance, in prayer, we can go to God and seek his will to guide us in our decisions as we would seek to apply not only what we know about the world, but what God has revealed about how we should live. Sometimes God answers us in those two things coming together. We see that in Jonathan. David is, has escaped from Keilah. He's in the wilderness. He knows Saul's still seeking him. And Jonathan races ahead of his father Saul and the ensuing armies to come and meet with David. And what does he do? How is it described there? He says that while he's in the desert, that Jonathan comes and sa- says, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. He confirms what God has already revealed to them. He encourages him, lest he be fearful. But notice the overall description of what he comes to do. Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horsh and strengthened his hand. In God. One of the unique privileges we have as God's people is to walk with one another through difficult times, through decision-making, through the ups and downs of our, our lives. And sometimes when people seek answers and guidance, we can be tempted to want to give an answer that feels good, to be the solution makers. And Jonathan, who is a great military strategist, who has political clout, who has wealth, comes to strengthen David Howe in God. One of the best ways, brothers and sisters, we can support people in their grief or in their decision-making or celebrate their victories is to point them towards God. Whatever advice, whatever wisdom we share, whatever shared experiences we convey, the point should be that they would see God more clearly. This is what Jonathan does for David. Prayer and the word are essential as a means of assessing the information we take in from the world and the options we consider and the options that we offer one another. This means that while we take in information from the world around us, that what God teaches us so many things through our experiences, that God's voice must be the primary voice we listen to. Just as David listened to the assurance of God over the fears of his men that we should hear God's guidance over our fears and our doubts, that when we are hurt and angry, that while we acknowledge that, we need to hear more clearly God's unchanging command to love and forgive, that while we know the likelihood of rejection, the discomfort of conversations with unbelievers about the gospel, yet we need to let the offer of Jesus' hope and the power of the Spirit speak more loudly than our concerns of rejection and failure. We need to let God's definition of what is right and necessary and true speak louder than the fears, lies, and doubts as many of us go into the voting polls this week. As we are trying to make decisions about what to do, God gives us a world that shows us information and knowledge But he does not leave us to the limitations and the deceit of some of that knowledge, but he gives himself that we may be guided by him and his word for us. So when we go to him and say, God, I have this decision. God, I'm uncertain. God, I don't know what to do. How does God answer us? What answers does he give? While God and his word is unchanging, that does not mean that every application in every moment is the same. Consider the decisions that David makes as he's assessing what's happening, and he goes to God specifically for guidance. In the first situation, when his men are not battle-tested, when they are fearful and would leave the the relative safety of Judah to go to this no-man's land to fight on behalf of Keilah, God says, go. God says to trust me in this moment, looks like you going into battle and having victory over the Philistines so he goes you've just beat the bad guys you've just rescued a city you are fat because not only did you rescue the the spoils of war that they were the Philistines were stealing but now you have their cattle how would you be feeling some of you that follow sports have heard of a trap game, right? Where you're riding so high on the victory you don't take seriously what comes next. David might be tempted to say, "We just won. Now we're in a stronghold city that has walls and gates. The people surely love us cuz we've just rescued them. Of course we know what to do with Saul. We're going to beat him. I'm going to show him who's boss." But God's answer in that occasion is not to fight, is not to have the military victory. God's answer in that situation is to retreat. Sometimes the victory God gives us is reminding us that the battle is one we are not meant to fight. The answer here is retreat. What we should do in any given situation may look different. The fruit of our decision may be varied, but the root of the answer is always the same, dependence on God to direct and sustain us. Both situations, David, by seeking God's guidance, is illustrating dependence. While it might seem foolish in some eyes to go and fight on behalf of Keilah, while it might risk his reputation to flee Keilah, in both situations, when he hears God's answer, the response outwardly is differently is different, but inward, it's the same. It's dependence on God. This is the wisdom, not only of wisdom literature, but the wisdom of our faith lived out. This summer, we spent time in the wisdom books and we talked about the fact that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and as we unpack that, we knew that we need to depend on God to apply the truth of God's Word. Proverbs 26, 4-5 comes up often. Sometimes we're supposed to answer a man in his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes, and sometimes we are not supposed to answer a fool according to his folly, lest we become like them. It depends on the context we see the temptation to sometimes say, well, well, God's answer is the answer every time. In Exodus 17, as Moses is leading the people through the wilderness, they are tired and they are thirsty and there is no water and they are complaining. And Moses prays and God instructs him in Exodus 17 that God himself would stand in front of the rock and that what should Moses do? He should strike the rock and out would come water. Then we come to Numbers 20. Similar situations. The people are thirsty. There is not fit water for them to drink. God says in that situation, Moses, speak to the rock. What does Moses do? He strikes the rock. And this is the occasion for which Moses finds out that he's not going to go into the promised land. And, and what does God say to him? What is the reason that he's not going into the promised land? It's less so about the disobedience in the act. It's his lack of faith. God says, for your unbelief, you will not go into the promised land. He let his anger and his frustration say, well, I struck the rock before. Why can't I just strike the rock this time? The ultimate contrast between David and Saul is David's ongoing relationship with God, who he comes to in humility and dependence for guidance, which is what will prepare him to be a king unlike Saul. Not that he's smart, not that he's strategic, not that he's big and tall and powerful, as Saul said, but his heart that seeks what God wants, not just in a pattern, but through daily dependence. When I was a freshman in college, I worked in the financial aid department and all of the staff of the college were women and all the student workers except for me were women. And so we had some interesting conversations as we were processing time cards and filing papers and I remember one conversation where my female colleagues were, were asking me questions about relationships and they said, you know, if you were, were married, what would you do for your wife after a long, difficult day? I seem to recall something about a pot of tea and a, and a bath drawn for her and some time and space. And they, they said, ooh, and ah, that's that's great. That's, that's such a great answer. I've been married now for 14 years, and let me tell you, that was the wrong answer. <laughs> it was the right answer in the sense that what I was talking about would be reflective of meeting... A, a spouse's needs in the midst of a, of a difficult day but that's not what my spouse needs and, and I confess there are times in our marriage where, where I want an algorithm where I want the pattern if X then Y some days my wife needs a hug and sometimes she needs space Sometimes my kids need a firm word of correction, and sometimes they just need a cookie and a nap. I have to love and protect and die to self on behalf of my wife and my children, but sometimes it's hugs, sometimes it's space, sometimes it's affirming, sometimes it's challenging. And the answers that God gives us is not a pattern of decisions, but dependence born out of ongoing relationship. We live in a world that calls us not to dependence, but mastery. If we find the right technology or we find the right technique, we can fix any problem. We just plug in the problem and we know what to do. It's not just a problem out there where we say, well, if you want to be beautiful in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, here's your skincare regimen. If you want to be successful at your business, you need to invest and manage in this way at this time. But it's something also that comes within the church. We ask, how should we do outreach? How should we disciple our children? What should we do? And maybe we in certain churches will look to the past and say, well, God did that in the past. That program worked. That worship style worked. That use of our space worked. We'll just keep doing that. It worked before, it will work again. Sometimes we can just look to other churches and say, well, it worked for Tim Keller at Redeemer. Maybe we should do that. It worked for the church up the road. Let's do that. And surely we can learn from history. Surely we can learn from others. But sometimes programs need to be abandoned. Sometimes we need to stay firm in our dependence on the means of grace that God has provided. Because God answers our questions about what to do not through pat answers, but a call to examine our lives in light of whether we are walking in faith and dependence on Him or whether we are looking at man's solutions to man's problems. One of the worst examples of this in the the broader church is what we call the prosperity gospel. That if we input enough faith, we will get that car, that job, that healing, That we want. If you invest this much money in this ministry, then God will bless you tenfold, fiftyfold, a hundredfold in your finances. It makes God into an algorithm instead of a personal, loving God who loves you enough to send his son to die for you. This is the God we go to in dependence and trust. As a pastor, I need to know the flock in order to shepherd you and apply God's word. God's word does not change. His truth is unchanging. The call for you to live in hope and faith in Jesus is unchanging. But for some of you, to live in faith means to say no to your doubts and your fears. And I need to encourage you, to embolden you in the application of the faith. For others of you, your lack of faith is because you are so strongly secure in your knowledge of yourself. It is the same answer, it's Jesus. But I will only be effective as a pastor if I know you and love you and apply it to you in a way that shows dependence on Jesus instead of a dependence on a Pat answer. God gives us knowledge in this world, and of his revelation of himself to guide us when we don't know what to do. And though the answer in different occasions, sometimes in the exact same situation, may vary, ultimately is the same. It is to depend on him. But brothers and sisters, here is the ultimate good news that this passage reveals to us, that God's guidance does not depend on our understanding or comprehension of it. While we are called to depend on God for his answers and his guidance and help, he does not depend on us. Sometimes God's guidance will be unseen. This is what we see happening in Ziph. David is delivered as he's on this mountaintop in Ziph, not because of an answer he gets from God, not because of his superior knowledge of military tactics or a superior operation of the terrain but he survives and escapes because of God's providential intervention of which he's not even aware notice the situation david's on the mountain saul's getting close they're on one side of the mountain and david and saul has superior forces and verse 26b tells us they're beginning to encompass david They are about to catch David. And if you are a Hebrew man or woman listening to this in the Hebrew, you would notice it's David, Saul. Saul, David. The offense is running down the field. The defense steps in, attempts a tackle. He he, he zags to the left. Uh, Another guy comes up from the safety position. Whatever the analogy, the, the tension is building. David, Saul, David, Saul. And the solution is not David or Saul. It is god intervening through the providential attack of the philistines to draw saul away from the encounter so that david would be rescued david does not know this is happening he is just doing his best to run away to safety this is one of the interesting things about reading scripture is that often when we're reading scripture god is revealing to us what he was doing behind the scenes as things were being displayed in the history of God's people. That we're often looking back on the situation with God's knowledge that the men and women in that situation did not have. As the people under trial and duress and captivity in Egypt were crying out for deliverance, saying, God, remember us. God was already talking to a man at a burning bush whom he had delivered through some very courageous midwives from Pharaoh's wrath. As God's people were languishing under Rome and seeking a servant to come and deliver them a new king, most of them did not understand that already born in Bethlehem was the promised Savior. In John 3, Nicodemus, a very smart man, a very religious man, I think a man with a very... Uh, with a heart of integrity, asks Jesus how one is to be saved. And how does Jesus answer him? Well, he must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can I be born again? A man cannot re-enter his mother's womb to be born. And this is what Jesus says to him. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it wishes. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell where it comes from and whither it goes. So it is, everyone that is born of the Spirit. Just as we don't know the source of, in the direction of the wind and where it's going. So, for we don't know ahead of time the work of the Spirit until we see already the fruit of God's Spirit at work. While we are right to seek God's guidance when we don't know what to do, when we are right to seek His guidance to make decisions or plan our steps, it is not because God needs us to know, but because He has already shown Himself able and willing to save without our knowledge. I grew up in Maryland and a lot of my classmates had uh, parents that worked for the Department of Defense. As many of you maybe in this area know stories of, of men or women who were supposed to be in the Twin Towers on September 11th, I heard many stories of men and women that were supposed to be in the Pentagon that morning. Car trouble, a canceled meeting indigestion kept men and women from that place and that tragedy. And yet they didn't know it at the time. Just as when when our, our kids can't find their shoes and it delays us only for us afterwards to realize had we been a minute earlier, we would have been in that 10-car pileup on the highway. We don't know the deliverance when it's happening until after the fact. It's not just how God saves us from car accidents or a violent battle with your enemy like in this passage, but this is how God saves us from sin and eternal judgment. This morning we are acknowledging the history of the Reformation and how God has used it to impact his church. And the Reformation understood that God is sovereign, that he is all good, that he is in control, and that there is nothing we bring to our salvation. Ephesians 2.5 says we are dead in our trespasses. Romans 5 says if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God. Not we were reconciled to God after we made up with God, but while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Ephesians 2 says, It's not by our effort, for by grace you are saved. Through faith and this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one would boast. The Reformation's reform was to reject that the way, had, the, way the church had become too dependent on its history, too dependent on its rituals and its traditions and the statements of one man in authority instead of the testimony of God's unchanging word, which shows us that our salvation is dependent on God's work in Christ alone. This gives me hope in the midst of asking, what should I do? And why is this happening? Brothers and sisters, I I can't say with 100% certainty, but I trust That baby Daisy May is in heaven with in the arms of her Savior. I say that on the basis of what God said to His servant Abraham in Genesis seventeen, and I will establish My covenant between Me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, because brothers and sisters we no more contribute to our salvation than Daisy. It is not our ability to say Jesus Christ. It is not our ability to comprehend the depth of our sins. It is not our ability to do what is right that saves us. It is the loving choice of a perfect, loving God to rescue those who could not rescue themselves any more than a minute-old infant child. The difference is not what we have brought to our salvation. It's merely how much we get to live in this world in light of it. We are sojourning in faith, awaiting the day when Christ comes and makes all things new, but until then, seeking his guidance, because he has shown he is powerful, he is able and willing to guide us and save us before we ever know it, and without any help from us. That's how I can pastor when I don't have the answers. When in the midst of grief and tragedy I have likely already misspoken and misstepped. That God is not dependent on my knowledge, on your knowledge, to rescue any more than David was depend when God was dependent on David's knowledge, but he intercede in his power to save his people. What should we do? This week we will have lots of decisions. How to parent our children. How to solve problems at work. How to vote in the midterm elections. How to move forward in our grief and our loss. You are not alone. God has given us his truth in this world He gives us himself to teach us what is right and prayer to seek our answers in relationship to him. And the answer to what we should do in all of these circumstances, no matter what it looks like externally, is dependence on him because he is able to save, even when we don't know the answer, even when we have gone the wrong way. Our hopes, brothers and sisters, is not in the answer what we should do but our hope is in the one to whom we ask that question. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We thank you that you respond to our need with your word to remind us of your promises, your goodness, your character, and our salvation apart from our power, knowledge, and good works. Help us to depend on you, no matter the circumstance, no matter the answer you give us. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.